Our police officers and firefighters and paramedics. They're the ones who rush to our aid when we're hurt, we're victims of crime, or our homes are burning. And that work at crime scenes and traumatic injuries and raging infernos places a heavy burden on those on the job. I'm Dave Breckenridge and this is 10-3. We take a look at how the emotional toll cost a veteran police officer his career. Before our conversation, I just want to thank all of you who have reached out with feedback about the show. I'd love to hear more. For starters, find us on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts and hit the subscribe button. And definitely leave a review and a comment, and hopefully you'll tell your friends about us. There was a massive melted plastic. It was like it wasn't so melted that you couldn't recognize what it was, but it was it was hard. Uh, and it was melted into the older boy's hand. And, uh, you know, I, we, we separated it out in the autopsy room and, and uh, photographed it. And I was able to take it apart and we examined it and learned that it was a Fisher Price flashlight, a child's flashlight that you would get, you know, for a toddler or somebody in preschool that, you know, a battery in it and hand with the flashlight. And, but you could, it had a knob on the side that you could turn it from green to red to clear. Uh, kind of almost like a fireman or policeman. And it was a cute, adorable toy. And, uh, and it looks like he had that in his hand. The neighbors later gave statements that he was trying to break the window. Like they could literally see him upstairs through the fire trying to break the window to get out. He wasn't successful. And, uh, Trevor Wilhelm is a reporter with the Windsor Star. The Star and the London Free Press teamed up on the feature Exit Wounds, which takes a look at the lingering trauma faced by our country's first responders. How did you come to know about William Donnelly? I've actually known him for several years. Uh, I was a police reporter here in Windsor, and he was the guy in charge of the major crimes branch. So uh, all the things we'd be interested in, you know, the most high-profile, most gruesome cases, uh, he was either investigating or in charge of. So uh, our paths crossed a lot that way. And then a few years later, after he retired, he retired early, uh, he's, I, we noticed he started tweeting uh, about uh, mental health issues. And it, was, uh, it got very personal with some of them. So we, we reached out to him just to see uh, if he was willing to talk about it. And that's how this whole thing kind of kicked off. So you say you, you know you knew him for a long time when he was uh, head of the major crimes there. How long was he a police officer for? He was about 30 years. He started in 86 and he retired in, in 2016. He retired early. And just to give you an idea, uh, he's still today, he's only 54. So had he been willing and able, he could have you know gone on for several more years. And as, as someone involved in major crimes, what kind of cases did he work? He worked, uh, so he spent most of his career in forensics and then major crimes. So basically the worst of the worst, uh, murders, you know, death, people being pulled out of the river, people dying in fires, uh, rape, uh, all, 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 the, all the worst things you can think of is, is what he was involved in. Through talking with him, some of the worst cases that he would have seen didn't necessarily come through his involvement in the major crimes unit as a forensics uh officer he would be at all manner of scenes through his career as you mentioned uh, death calls fire calls things like that um what were some of the hardest cases for him in your conversations with him 
some of the hardest cases were because he had his own kids. Uh, a lot of them were involving kids uh, because uh, something, you know, a, a, a child death investigation and suddenly, uh, you know, be looking at his own kid and you'd have this, you know, flashback of something that happened to a kid. Uh, so a lot of the, the, those were some of the worst ones for him. He did, uh, in forensic, he, you know, he did go to a lot of pretty crazy crime scenes where, you know, he would describe uh, there was a murder of a failed uh, mayoral candidate at a at a Sikh uh, place of worship here, and he went in there, and you know, in some places he said the blood was pooled on the on the floor inches after this uh, guy, uh, you know, killed a couple of people in there, just stabbed them dozens and dozens of times. In therapy, one of the therapists, one of the key phrases he said is that humans do not do horror well, and it's that whole fight or flight reflex that you can do it for a very short period of time on occasion, but you can't be subjected to it over and over and over where your body is in a constant state of that. It's toxic. It's not good. It's not good for your brain. It's not good for organs. And how long had this emotional trauma been building up for him? I, I mean, we hear stories about how first responders are often expected to kind of compartmentalize some of the horrors that they see, but obviously that, that takes a toll. So how long was it kind of bubbling under the surface there? I think probably if you asked him, he'd tell you right, looking back now, probably right from the beginning, uh, he, he, he talked about early, early in his career, you know, he, uh, in an alley, he, he, he broke up a robbery of this uh, guy being held at knife point and is, you know, just this terrified guy. And he still, you know, that, that even is still with him today, that kind of image. But, um, you know, in the, in the nineties, uh, when he started getting into the, you know, the, the more gruesome stuff, I think is really, when it, when it started and he didn't realize it at the time, but you know, he would, he'd be having nightmares and sleepless nights and didn't really think that it wasn't normal. So, uh, it just, it was, it had been decades really, it just been building up and he kind of didn't realize what was happening. And what were some of the stressors that would kind of bring some of this to the surface? A lot of things involving his children. He, uh, so it was, there were two, two, two cases in particular that uh, he talked a lot about. And one of them later in his career, which actually led to his, led to his early retirement, was uh, the day the police found the body of his friend's daughter in the Detroit River. So uh, you know, that caused a, a pretty serious breakdown. And uh, earlier on, there was, a, there was a case involving two young boys, uh, Michael and Edmund Doe. They were five and nine, and they died in uh, a house fire. And uh, one of the stressors there was he, he talked about being in the, in the autopsy and, and the older boy had a, a flashlight melted into his hand. And uh, they learned later that he, he was using that flashlight to try to break the window to escape. And then uh, a few years later, at Christmas time, his uh, friends brought over a gift for, for his young son, who I think would have been four or five at the time. So he opens the gift, he reaches in, and he pulls out little yellow Fisher-Price flashlight with a lens that you can turn from green to red and clear. And as soon as I saw him holding that, I broke down. Like, I mean, my brain broke. It, I just started sobbing, like uncontrollable, that messy, uncontrolled crying of snot and trying to struggle for breath and tears so thick that you can't see through them and just that was the first time that you really realized that uh you know something wasn't quite right here 
yeah, it caught up. It was just, yeah, it was like almost a death by a thousand paper cuts, but some of the cuts were pretty deep. That was a deep one. That was, I think that was the first big one and uh, it just never had a chance to close. And then subsequent things over the years just kept that wound open where it never healed properly in my brain and it all came out again later. We'll be right back. We're approaching the best part of the NHL season. Coming out of the All-Star break, there'll be a ton of trade talk as teams load up to make a push to the playoffs. And we all know that hockey fans will be keeping an eye on the wildcard race, not to mention which coaches or GMs could get bounced from their jobs early. With so much going on in the NHL, you want a little more news and a deeper look at the playoff picture. We've got it with the Off the Post podcast. Our team of hockey experts joins host Paul Chapman for a deep dive on the big issues in the NHL. Check it out on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. So it's a pretty intense burden to be asking our first responders to carry. What kind of impact did this have on his life and his career? I mean, you mentioned the at early retirement, uh, but leading up to that, did it impact his work, his family life? Did he talk about anything like that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it did. It, essentially, it ended his career. He retired, uh, you know, much earlier than he intended. But it, it, it kind of it, it affected all aspects of his life. You know, he would have uh, emotional breakdowns, uh, mood swings. He was often agitated. You know, he couldn't sleep. There was a period there where he couldn't he couldn't stop thinking about suicide, and he would develop in his in his mind these elaborate suicide scenarios where he would, you know, he would go to the ER in the hospital and 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 shoot himself in the head so that doctors could harvest his organs or he would hang himself from the third floor of police headquarters or you know ride his bicycle into an oncoming tractor trailer so it really it really did affect every aspect of of his life um i think it was, it was a strain on his marriage at one point so really just wide reaching no back 10 20 years ago even to the start of his career it, this wasn't something that was talked about openly was he able to get help from within the police force there or was this something that he had to manage on his own initially he just ignored it uh like a lot of guys a lot of people did back then uh he just kind of sucked it up you know um but um he did eventually you know there was peer counseling that he uh was able to get through through the through the police and eventually uh counseling outside of outside of that uh, with you know professional therapist and that kind of thing um but it was you know there was he did talk about it being a stigma uh especially especially you know 15 20 years ago uh where you just you know you suck it up you you know it's kind of that macho idea where you just you just you know you swallow it and you keep moving on and he compared it to uh you know like somebody with a health issue like somebody with with diabetes you know you'd stop and you'd stop and get that guy in orange juice because he got diabetes but somebody with mental health issues you just you just kind of you know, oh, that guy's not quite right. You know, we don't talk about it. So he did deal with a, lo a lot of that throughout his career. Is that kind of what made you want to report on this story or take a deeper look at it? Was was breaking some of that stigma or the silence around it? Or was there another reason that you felt that it was a, a compelling story to tell? Well, that was kind of the reason. You know, we were seeing uh, Donnelly talking about this kind of publicly. And one of, the, one of the first people to really do that in the Windsor area that we knew um, but, you know, every once in a while you would hear something about an officer uh, taking, uh, taking their own lives or, you know, retiring early for under these kind of, you know, 
pre for reasons that weren't really talked about. So, yeah, we thought it would be something good to just kind of dive deep into and, and you know bring it bring light to this subject and uh, you know show the effects how people are dealing with it and and that it's not it's really something that you know it's you shouldn't be embarrassed about. How has it been for you working on this story? Obviously, as a, a reporter who's covered crime, it, it carries with it some uh, emotional burden as well. I, I don't imagine in a lot of cases it's as heavy a burden as some of the first responders are carrying being in crime scenes or being at uh, autopsy rooms. But, you know, telling telling the stories also carries a bit of a toll. How was it going through these interviews and these events with William Donnelly? Well, it was a bit of a bit of an eye opener, you know, as, as a police reporter, I've, you know, I've written a lot about it, about a lot of tragedy and, and, and that kind of thing. But, uh, to hear to the, these people really kind of drill down into the, you know, these nitty gritty details of what, what they're dealing with. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, painstaking de detail about the things they've seen. Uh, it was a bit of an eye opener just in, in, in that way. Now, obviously, the the idea of talking about post-traumatic stress disorder uh, surrounding first responders is something that's becoming more commonplace. You're also seeing a greater awareness of suicides among people like firefighters and police officers. How serious a problem is it for uh, that sector of the public service? Well, there's no definitive studies on on exact numbers. You know, you can get varying varying answers to that but it, it's anywhere from you know kind of a third to to half of first responders uh have at least some symptoms of ptsd at some point uh so in canada you know we're talking tens of thousands of of people right and uh, there are also dozens of suicides every year from first responders as well so it is it's a pretty it's a pretty big deal and these are rates higher than would be seen in the average population i imagine yeah, and again, the numbers are hard to pin down, but uh, you know, it's kind of understood that it's about twice they're they're about twice as likely to suffer uh, symptoms of PTSD than than the general population. Now, you mentioned earlier um, that Donnelly had had kind of manifested some suicidal ideations. He talked about mood swings. Uh, when you're talking to the experts about this as well, how else is it manifesting in terms of symptoms or in terms of how people may try and treat it themselves? Yeah, it really depends on on the individual, but there's a wide range of, of, of things from, again, emotional, physical breakdowns, uh, you know, infidelity, gambling, alcoholism, uh, just mood swings, just kind of checking out isolating themselves. Uh, so there's really just a wide range of symptoms. On the treatment side of things, is this something that's readily available? Are there specialized, is there specialized care for people like first responders to get treatment for their PTSD? There is now, and it's becoming more available than it used to be. Uh, there are facilities like uh, Homewood uh, based in Guelph where they, uh, you know, they have inpatient programs, outpatient programs, and they have a program specifically for first responders, and they treat about a thousand of them a year. And um, part of that is they have a program specifically for first responders, so they're with peers, and they're more uh, easily relatable to to each other, and they're more likely to open up that way. So, th so, it, so there is a lot of a lot of help there now compared to what there used to be. Now, for someone like Donnelly, who who lived through it for a long time, and it ended up costing him his career early, it forced him into early retirement. What does he hope could come from a series like this? Does he uh, 
want to see more discussion around mental health and more treatment options available? What does he think needs to be done to help shed that stigma around mental health? Yeah, he just wants, I think he wants the discussion uh, just to get people talking about it and uh, kind of bring light to it and show that it's it's nothing to be embarrassed or ashamed about. You know, it's, it's not a weakness, which is how a lot of a lot of first responders first responders used to see it. Uh, so basically, he just wants to get people talking about it and and kind of you know there might be somebody else out there that's dealing with issues that um, you know they're afraid to talk about and so just kind of give people uh, some help coming forward and getting help. Now, as someone who's covered crime and who's dealt with first responders uh, for good chunk of your career as well was there anything about covering this story that was surprising or or really eye-opening for you it was surprising uh, just how many how many people are affected by this uh, problem how widespread it is um I, you know i didn't expect to see that uh, you know possibly half half of people uh, you know paramedics firefighters police are dealing with ptsd um and and again just the uh, even as a crime reporter i guess i didn't realize uh, how terrible some of the things they deal with really are and uh, you know what kind of deep personal toll that takes on people well it is a definitely a, a somber reminder of the the horrors that these uh, first responders have to deal with in their day-to-day lives and a definitely an important story to be telling uh, trevor thanks for your time thank you 10-3 is produced by carson jarama special thanks to my guest trevor wilhelm i'm dave breakenridge thanks for listening